Return of the Jedi premiered on May 25th, 1983, exactly six years to the day after the release of the first Star Wars film. The final chapter in the trilogy gave audiences a wonderfully thrilling movie-going experience and served as a satisfying conclusion to a story that had enraptured fans around the world. Star Wars became a cultural phenomenon and changed filmmaking forever. It raised the bar for on-screen technical and practical effects and brought the excitement of science fiction and fantasy to mainstream audiences. But the end of the trilogy was bittersweet. Audiences had become attached to the characters of the Star Wars universe and wanted George Lucas to continue the adventures of Luke Skywalker, Lando Calrissian, Chewbacca, Han Solo, and Princess Leia. They wanted to ride with them in the Millennium Falcon, confront whatever evil presented itself to the galaxy, and meet new and wonderful creatures along the way. And with the conclusion to the trilogy came uncertainty. Fans began to wonder, what happens after Return of the Jedi? What would the next film be? And more importantly, would there even be a next film? For Lucas, when it came to Star Wars, the next anything was the furthest thing from his mind. In a 1983 interview with Time Magazine's Denise Worrell, Lucas admitted, I am burned out and I am burned out, period. Star Wars had dominated my life, sort of grabbed it and taken it over against my will. I've got to get my life back before it's too late. The sacrifices that had to make it to this point are greater than what I wanted to make, ultimately. Beyond the film trilogy, the Star Wars stories of 1984 and 1985 centered largely around the Ewoks, the furry and diminutive creatures who helped the Rebels defeat the Empire in Return of the Jedi's final act. This time, however, the action shifted to the small screen in the form of two made-for-TV live-action Ewoks movies, followed by two animated series produced by the animation house Nelvana. The first was another Ewoks show, and the second, titled Droids, presented the earlier adventures of C-3PO and R2-D2 before they joined the Rebellion. The droids also appeared in another small film in the late 1980s, this time as part of Star Tours, a motion simulator attraction at the Disney parks. The droids and Ewoks cartoons ran for only a season or two before being canceled. Nelvana co-founder Michael Hirsch later commented on the failure of the series, saying, The challenge on droids was that you essentially had the Star Wars story to bring forward without Luke, Leia, Darth Vader, and Han Solo. Without those core characters, Star Wars didn't really feel like Star Wars anymore. As beloved and as coveted as the Kenner action figures were during the late 70s and early 80s, the conclusion of the trilogy seemed to quell the fervor for them. Kenner attempted to squeeze a little more life from the dying line by pitching a new direction for the action figures for a 1985 and 1986 release. The company hoped to introduce a villain named Atha Prime and to tell the further adventures of Luke and Leia, but the line never made it past the design stage. And by the middle of the decade, children's tastes in toys began to shift. 
they began to gravitate toward newer and more exciting offerings, with more dynamic features and playability, like G.I. Joe and Mask, and activity sets like Laser Tag. The remnants from the Kenner line, the Power of the Force figures, the droids and Ewoks ones, and the leftover Return of the Jedi figures eventually found themselves heavily discounted and piled in clearance bins of toy stores around the country. As Lucas licensing president Howard Rothman recounted, in 1986, George Lucas suggested to his team that it was time to give Star Wars a rest. The world had moved on a bit, and the franchise's creator needed a well-deserved break from building out the universe. So Lucas licensing temporarily froze the franchise in Carbonite, where it remained alive, but in perfect hibernation. What Lucas and his team did not know at the time was how passionate and voracious the Star Wars fan base remained. They were simply waiting for the saga to continue waiting for the Star Wars they knew and loved to return. This is a look at how the 1990s reinvigorated Star Wars fans across the globe through a series of new and exciting stories, films, and events. This is an account of how these newer stories about older characters and a slow wave of rising nostalgia came together at the perfect time as people revisited the Star Wars films and Kenner toys of the 1970s and 1980s. This is the story of how the 1990s created an era beyond the original three films, and in doing so, created the Star Wars collector and birthed the collecting hobby. This is where it began for many of us. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Before the release of Episode 7, The Force Awakens, in 2015, the future-focused website Gizmodo interviewed Steve Sansweet for an article about the impact Star Wars had on toy licensing and the movie industry. Steve is the owner and curator of Rancho Obi-Wan, a museum devoted to the largest Star Wars collection in the world. While the article focused mainly on the Star Wars toy craze of the 1970s and 1980s, Steve summarized the origins of our hobby in a profound way. He said, The collecting hobby really started in the early 1990s with the growth of the internet. It enabled people to see what was out there, what could be purchased, and what they could miss. And it went from there. Now we're in the third generation of parents passing down to their kids who pass down to their kids. Steve was right. 
For most of us who played with the toys as children, the 1990s seemed to reignite that passion within us. And as we transitioned toward adulthood, we became collectors. While the rise of the internet and a growing sense of nostalgia may have been a catalyst for some, the simple fact was that we had all new stories and films to explore, and new action figures to collect. Star Wars was as fresh and as relevant as ever in the 1990s, and it's easy to forget the sheer amount of offerings from that decade. As I've said many times in the past, collectibles serve as tangible souvenirs of intangible moments and experiences. And for hardcore Star Wars fans growing up during the franchise's first 20 years, those intangible moments and experiences were life-changing. The 1990s brought Star Wars back to mainstream audiences, beginning with an exciting novel and ending the decade with an all-new Star Wars film. Let's explore how some of these events and offerings reignited the Star Wars fandom and shaped the vintage collector. May 1991, Heir to the Empire. In 1988, Lou Aronica, the head of the science fiction division of publishing house Bantam Books, pitched an idea to Lucasfilm. He wanted to publish a trilogy of novels that would take place within the Star Wars universe, focusing on the unexplored events occurring after Return of the Jedi. Although nothing materialized immediately with Lucasfilm, Lou was certainly on the right track with his pitch. A year later, Lucas Licensing decided to explore the idea of future Star Wars stories and reopened its adult fiction publishing program. Finance director Lucy Autry Wilson had tried to persuade President Howard Rothman to license the property to book publishers for a while as she believed an audience of adult Star Wars fans would relish the continuation of the saga in print. Rothman received approval from George Lucas. However, Lucas famously gave two guidelines for the new stories. The timeline had to be after Return of the Jedi, because he had expressed casual interest over the years in pursuing a film trilogy that would take place before the events of A New Hope. And the new books could not kill off any major characters. And although Lucas gave his blessing to the project, he doubted the relevance and appeal of the franchise. After all, six years had passed since the last movie had been released. The internet and social media as we know it simply did not exist. Star Wars had been dormant all that time. There was no way to truly know whether the same fan base that flocked to theaters would show up to purchase Star Wars novels. Most of the publishers Wilson contacted about taking on a Star Wars publishing license seemed to agree with Lucas. Was Star Wars really relevant anymore, especially to an audience of adult readers? But Bantam, who pitched the idea the year before, saw value in the franchise. Lou Aronica, the original pitchman, did not expect the novels to be a niche interest. 
Instead, he felt the books would ignite a mainstream audience, similar to what the films did a decade earlier. And with a deal in place, Bantam selected its writer to tell the next Star Wars story. Total Panic That's how author Timothy Zahn described his reaction to being offered the chance to write the next Star Wars story. His agent called him in November of 1989 and told him to pause his progress on the book he had been writing and to consider taking on a three-novel saga for Bantam Books. A point of pride for Zahn is that he has been a Star Wars fan since May 26, 1977, when he saw the film in theaters on its second night after its opening. During the 1980s, he wrote many of his novels while listening to John Williams' scores. And his favorite Star Wars film was Empire Strikes Back, because it established the Empire as a true threat, which in his eyes made the protagonist's heroics that much more impactful. As a science fiction fan, he loved Star Wars. And now, Lucasfilm wanted him to tell the next Star Wars story. Sometimes when we're faced with great challenges, it's like we're horses waiting at the starting gate, waiting for that door to open. And when it does, and we can see a path materialize in front of us, we take off at speeds greater than we ever thought we'd reach. Within two weeks of accepting the role as the new trilogy's author, Zahn composed a 40-page outline for the arc of the three novels. He would have to wait six months before having his outline approved and beginning the writing process, though, as Bantam and Lucasfilm needed to work out the contract for the licensing agreement. However, I believe that this waiting period gave Zahn the time he needed to properly envision the book in his mind without having to physically write it yet. I imagine he spent many hours forming the characters and giving them backstories that would never show up in the novels, but would be important to the characters' believability and depth. As the Chicago Tribune noted, Timothy Zahn would be one of the first people outside of Lucas to tinker in the Star Wars universe, and Zahn took the challenge very seriously. His main concern was that the story he told would be seen as a true Star Wars story, one that felt very much like a continuation of the story Lucas started. Otherwise, as he wittily concluded, his offering would simply be an adventure of two guys named Han and Luke, and would be a waste of everyone's time. To Zahn's relief, Lucasfilm did not have a story map for what happened after the events of Return of the Jedi, which afforded him what he describes as a very clean canvas. They didn't have any scaffolding, he said, so I built the scaffolding. Once the contract between Bantam and Lucasfilm was signed, the starter pistol went off, and Zahn charged ahead. Within six months, he had finished the preliminary manuscript, titled Heir to the Empire. Heir to the Empire begins with Obi-Wan appearing to Luke in a force dream. He tells Luke that his connection to the present world is fading, and he is preparing to cross over to whatever lies beyond. And as he says his farewell to the young Jedi, he warns him that while the Emperor is gone, the dark side of the Force is still a threat, that he will face new dangers and will find new allies in unexpected places. 
And with that, Luke's former mentor disappears forever. What comes next is truly worth the read. A clone of a deceased Jedi, insane and determined to hunt down a set of soon-to-be-born twins to guide them in his distorted ways of the Force. The revelation of the Emperor's Hand, Palpatine's personal assassin who is hunting Luke. The determination of Lando, Chewbacca, and Han to protect Leia by sending her to the planet Kashyyyk. But the most stunning inclusion in Heir to the Empire was the introduction of a brand new villain, Grand Admiral Thrawn. This blue-skinned and raven-haired creature with glowing red eyes and a crisp white admiral's uniform led the Imperial Navy's attempt to reclaim the galaxy for the Empire. And Thrawn's greatest weapon was not his fleet, but his intellect. Zahn established the character as someone who was always five steps ahead of anyone else, and was able to strategize by learning about his enemy through their art, their culture, and their past. And Zahn described Thrawn as a true threat, as a villain who could inspire a fierce sense of loyalty, because even when he's not in the room, his people will fight and die for him. Zahn's story was the perfect mix of furthering the adventures of the characters from the original trilogy while presenting new ones that were just as compelling. Zahn and Bantam believed the new novel was a strong offering, but no one had any idea how the general public would receive it. Again, there was no internet, no social media, no way to monitor and analyze the excitement around a property that had been in hibernation for the previous seven years. Bantam released the book in hardcover form in May of 1991, but due to the uncertainty around the book's success, the company published 70,000 copies for the initial run, which was 30,000 less than a typical book release at that time. In addition, the price of the book was set at $15, lower than the standard price of $22 in an effort to attract more readers. These actions demonstrate how little confidence Lucasfilm and Bantam had in the book finding a mainstream audience of Star Wars fans again. Heir to the Empire would likely appeal to a niche audience, and the true heyday of Star Wars pop culture dominance would be a thing of the past. And as we know now, Heir to the Empire far exceeded anyone's expectations and shot into the stratosphere. The first 70,000 copies sold within the first two weeks of release, sending the book into multiple print runs to keep up with demand. Heir to the Empire hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, topping John Grisham's iconic 1990s novel, The Firm. Today, Heir to the Empire has sold more than 15 million copies worldwide and has become a beloved Star Wars story that many fans hope will become canon and will someday appear as its own film trilogy. In 2016, a few years after Disney purchased Lucasfilm, Thrawn was officially added to the new era of the Star Wars universe as an antagonist in the third season of the Star Wars Rebels animated series. Thrawn's popularity has risen steadily since, and Timothy Zahn has been reunited with his creation. Through the Del Rey Publishing House, Zahn wrote a new Thrawn-centric trilogy beginning in 2017 that told the story of his early days and how he rose to the rank of Grand Admiral within the Empire. 
and Zahn is currently in the middle of his latest Thrawn series, titled The Ascendancy Trilogy. In the foreword to the 20th anniversary edition of Heir to the Empire, Zahn politely refuses to take credit for restarting Star Wars, and instead credits the power of the fandom and the lasting connection made by the original films. He says, A more accurate statement would be that I was the first person since Jedi who was permitted to stick a fork into the pie crust to see if there was still any steam underneath. And as one quietly awestruck, he notes, There was steam. Man, there was steam. December 1991, Dark Empire. Do you remember when the Emperor somehow returned from death, preserved through a cloning system, and created a fleet of starships capable of destroying entire planets? And it was up to the remaining rebels and a Jedi to stop Palpatine again, so long as the Jedi can avoid surrendering to the dark side of the Force. Sound familiar? Except I'm not talking about the plot to the 2019 film Rise of Skywalker. Almost 30 years before Episode 9 ended the Skywalker saga, a comic miniseries titled Dark Empire became the first major Star Wars comic to be released in the 1990s. While comic publisher Marvel ran a popular and long-running Star Wars series in the 1970s and 1980s, the company let its license with Lucas lapse heading into the 1990s. A small publishing house named Dark Horse picked up the license in 1991 and published the comic, which was written by Tom Veach and illustrated by Cam Kennedy, and featured cover art by the legendary Star Wars artist Dave Dorman. The first iteration of the series ran as a six-issue bi-monthly series beginning in December of that year. As Lucas set guidelines for the publishing license with Bantam, certain storytelling rules were established for Dark Empire as well. Veach originally wanted to use Darth Vader as the comic's antagonist and set the story in the years before the original trilogy. But Lucas rejected both ideas. That propelled Veach to figure out a creative way to bring back Palpatine to life for his post-Return of the Jedi series. Dark Empire took place a year after the events of Zahn's novels. In the story, the Emperor has survived and has transferred his consciousness to a younger, more agile clone proxy. However, his powers of the dark side of the Force are so strong that the clone deteriorates rapidly. In order to live forever, Palpatine has set up a clone facility to create an infinite number of host bodies for himself. Luke Skywalker soon finds himself in the company of the Clone Emperor and agrees to become Palpatine's apprentice in order to understand how and why his father turned to the dark side of the Force. However, the dark side is too seductive, too overpowering, and once Luke is under the Emperor's control, it takes his sister Leia to bring him back to the light side. 
Luke turning to the dark side was something that none of us could imagine happening during the run of the films. After all, he was our hero. But the Dark Empire series turned that temptation into a stark reality. It answered the questions many of us had wondered for years. What would happen if the Emperor finally had his way? And as one writer noted, it was a truly revolutionary topic to explore within the Star Wars universe. The comic, like the Zahn novels, were not a play to appeal to fans' nostalgia for the films from the previous decade. They were vibrant and fresh stories that continued the saga. This is most evident in Dave Dorman's cover art for Dark Empire. Dorman described his approach to the covers as a way to give the reader the feeling that they were seeing a movie poster for a brand new Star Wars film with each issue. The interior art was markedly different from the Star Wars comics of the 1980s. Where many of the Marvel Star Wars panels were bright and colorful, the pages of Dark Empire were monochromatic and moody, with the pages washed in watercolors. Looking back on them, they are stylistic and stunning. Full pages in which a sickly yellow-green was employed to an intense effect, or the sides of a building were coated in thin layers of lavenders, reds, and soft pinks. And each page had the essence of Star Wars. Two sequel comic series were released after the success of Dark Empire. The first was Dark Empire II, which premiered in 1995, and Empire's End, which came out two years later. And during the comic's run in the 1990s, Dark Horse sold more than 100,000 copies. October 1992. Star Wars from concept to screen to collectible. A single image. A gold prototype Darth Vader case against a black background. The picture on the book's cover was divided into quadrants, with two diagonals representing positive segments and the other two as negatives. Gold on black, black on gold. It was a striking dynamic depiction, heavily stylized and without a title or a single word on the cover. Yet I was drawn immediately to it, and I ran toward the display that showcased it as soon as it caught my eye. I remember being at a bookstore with my mother, most likely a Walden Books in a mall either in New Jersey or Long Island. And I remember flipping through the pages as a young Star Wars fan, my eyes widening at every page. Before this moment, the only Star Wars resources I owned were the card backs of the figures I had as a child, and some of the comics and storybooks from the 1980s. I played with the toys until the mid to late 1980s and had only transitioned to collecting the figures the year before. And being so young, my access to any collecting communities or resource materials was extremely limited. I collected comics around the same time, but never recall seeing any Star Wars figures for sale at any of the local comic shops I frequented. And I had stumbled onto a book that not only contained a wealth of information about the creation of the films I loved, but showed me the range of Star Wars toys and collectibles that were available. And there was so much to explore within those 131 pages. 
I cannot remember if my mother purchased the book for me that day, or if I received it later in the season as a Christmas gift. But Star Wars, from concept to screen to collectible, had a profound effect on me as a collector. And from years of speaking about the book with other collectors, I'm happy to report that many of them had a similar experience. The book was composed and written by Stephen J. Sansweet, who at the time was the Los Angeles bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. Steve was a science fiction fan who loved Star Wars, and was in the earliest stages of amassing a world-famous collection of items from the film's licensing bonanza during the 1980s. He heard that Lucasfilm was restarting its publishing division, and that the company was considering releasing a Star Wars collectibles price guide. So he called Lucasfilm to see if he could be the one to write it. Steve spoke with Lucy Autry Wilson, who you may remember worked as the finance director for Lucas Licensing, and was a big proponent for Lucasfilm's return to publishing Star Wars stories. Lucy pitched the idea for the book as a price guide with Star Wars-related anecdotes. But Steve proposed shifting the focus from a price guide to a book about Star Wars with anecdotes. Steve wanted to tell a story that, as he described it, traced the movie from an idea in George Lucas's mind to how they actually made it at ILM and in production, and then to the merchandise. For his book, Steve spoke with dozens of people who worked on the films and on the products, culling material from over 40 hours of recorded interviews. He pulled photos from the Kenner, Lucasfilm, and ILM archives. It was a mammoth undertaking, but the result was one that would impact Star Wars fans for the next 30 years. Star Wars, from concept to screen to collectible, was published in October of 1992. The first chapter began. George Lucas was in agony. Nothing about making this film was easy, but staring at a blank pile of blue-lined paper in front of him, knowing that he had to make these script revisions and soon caused his mind to drift into the fantasy world he was trying to create. Small black lightning bolt symbols separated the paragraphs and photos filled every page. In the span of a few chapters, a reader could see rare images of everything from the early bird action figure kit to Jim Swearingen's earliest X-Wing toy designs for Kenner and Lucasfilm model maker Colin Cantwell's preliminary Star Destroyer model for the film. Ralph McQuarrie sketches and Joe Johnston vehicle illustrations punctuated the creativity in designing a universe for the trilogy. And through Sansweet's punchy paragraphs, the exploration of Lucas's journey in translating a vision to celluloid was an immensely exciting one. Sansweet scattered fun factoids throughout the book as well. Reading them in the 90s, I felt as though a friend were sharing secret knowledge about the films and the collectibles with me, and many of them have remained with me throughout the decade. Here's an example of one of Steve's factoids from page 55. While most moviegoers could tell the difference between a giant man-eating shark and little guys in brown monks' robes who bought and sold used droids, Universal Pictures, which had seen its number one box office position for Jaws overtaken by Star Wars, initially objected to the granting of a trademark for use of the word Jawas. 
Folks, they feared, might confuse the scavengers of the Tatooine Desert with the Great White Shark. The second half of the book was eye-opening for collectors. The chapter titled Of Dogs and Mugs and Wookiees highlighted some of the earliest merchandise licensed by Lucasfilm. And beginning with the next chapter, Prophetic and Toyetic, the book covered the action figures, vehicles, and playsets released by Kenner. I've seen many copies of the book over the years. And one thing that always struck me was how many people use the two-page spread in the middle of the book as a checklist. Sansweet used the image taken by Kim Simmons and found on the cardbacks of the 1984 and 1985 Power of the Force action figures for the spread. The photo is a familiar and iconic one. It's a group shot of Kenner's 92 figures on a yellow background of riser-like steps. In one of my copies of the book, the previous owner marked the figures they owned or did not yet own with red and blue star stickers. I've seen copies owned by other collectors in which figures needed were circled and ones acquired were either crossed out or marked with a check. And these chapters gave collectors mouth-watering images of rare and desirable figures, as well as of the prototypes that created them. Where else at that time could you see a vinyl cape Jawa next to its cloth-wearing counterpart in the same photo? Or a blue snaggletooth compared to a red one, and a small-head Han Solo standing alongside a large-head Han? One of my favorite photos is on that same page. It presents three original Kenner sculpts, the Yak Face Acetate and the Vader and C-3PO Waxes with each one positioned next to its final production example. And the next page contained one of the most discussed and cherished images in the entire book. It showed the front and back of the Boba Fett action figure and the front and back of an unpainted and unproduced rocket-firing Boba Fett prototype. Of course, the value of a rocket Fett today is the equivalent to a Porsche 911 Turbo or a small house. But even then, they were difficult and expensive to obtain. And the caption for the rocket fed image is notable because it is one of the first times the term first shot is used to describe a particular prototype to the general public. Sansweet also featured many other unproduced items from the Kenner archives as well. Through his book, we were granted a look behind the production curtain at a talking Yoda doll that never made it past the prototype phase, rejected outfits for the 12-inch action figures like Luke's X-Wing pilot gear, some of the unreleased 12-inch figures for the Empire Strikes Back toy line, and at children's roleplay sets for Return of the Jedi, like the Jedi Knight training set and the Boba Fett bounty set that only exist as concepts. And another image that many collectors point to as one that inspired them was from page 93. It takes up three quarters of the page and shows the development of a micro-collection die-cast metal miniature figure of Luke on Tauntaun. The two largest items in the photo are the peach-colored wax sculpt and the green Dynacast hard copy. 
Below them are three of the die-cast metal samples demonstrating various states of the production process before leading to the final painted production example of the figure. This was one of the first times, if not the first time, an image like this of the pre-production process of a Star Wars figure was presented to the public. For collectors, the image spoke to them and spoke loudly. It gave them an indirect objective to try to curate a run of items for a particular toy that would serve as a visual display of the creation of that item. And in doing so, a collector not only displayed a love for Star Wars, but an appreciation for the work executed by employees on the Kenner line. For collectors, seeing an image like a wax sculpt of a Luke on Tauntaun does something to our brains. At once, it shows us that pieces like this exist, and that it is possible to hunt down the earliest iteration, the one-of-one piece that started it all. This book contains moments, sparks of light, that inspired collectors to explore the hobby in a deeper way. To become archaeologists themselves and to track the histories and provenances of pieces through Kenner employees and recipients of those early offerings. And Steve's books showcased much more than the toys. The later chapters covered a wide swath of merchandise, from cookie and cereal boxes to coin banks and shoes. Plates, patches, posters, and promotional items offered collectors a peek at items to collect beyond the toys. The book really emphasized the cultural impact Star Wars had on the world, and the fact that Star Wars licensing had really covered anything you could imagine being branded. In a 2014 interview with Dan Florida, legendary collector Steve Denny recounted a conversation he had with Sansweet leading up to the book's release. Denny said, When Steve Sansweet put his first book out, he came to the house and talked to me a couple of times. He told me, Steve, when this book hits the market, prices are going to go straight up. He was exactly right. Things went from $10 to $100. And in a conversation for the podcast, Talking Bay 94, Steve Sansweet talked about the feedback he's received over the years. My first book came out in 1992, and lots of people tell me today um, that that was the book that really turned them on to Star Wars collecting. Yeah. Um, they were of the right age. They had grown up. They were kids when Star Wars came out. They were now in the workforce and had some disposable income. And and the book showed them how much stuff there really was out there, how much stuff was made, and the pre-production items, and worldwide, and food items, and you know, so it it really did. So people either thank me or blame me for that <laughs> <Right>. book. <laughs> if Star Wars, from concept to screen to collectible, provided a general map of what the collecting hobby could become, collectors needed to find a marketplace to procure these rare items. And that early marketplace would take place between the pages of a magazine.
The Collecting Magazine of the 1990s, Toy Shop Magazine. If you were a Star Wars collector in the 1990s, before the internet reached the mainstream, Toy Shop Magazine was your marketplace. Created in 1988 and produced by Krause Publications, Toy Shop Magazine ran as a bi-weekly newsprint publication for buyers and dealers of vintage toys. I've spoken to many collectors over the years that bought and sold rare Star Wars items through Toy Shop Magazine. Mark Huckabone was one of the more notable sellers at the time, and offered some incredible vintage Star Wars prototypes in the early 1990s. And longtime collector Paul Chu paid his way through college by selling through Toy Shop's print ads. And wherever there's a system for sales, collectors always manage to find an edge to get access to the items before the general readership. And many did this by ordering their issues through UPS's Next Day Air Service, receiving the magazine earlier than most, and scanning through it for the good deals before contacting the sellers by phone. By the time the majority of collectors received the latest edition of Toy Shop Magazine in the mail, many of the one-of-a-kind items were already sold. Years ago, Chris Jorgulius, one of the collectors responsible for recording valuable information on the collecting website, the Star Wars Collector's Archive, decided to log some of these toy shop ads for the internet era. He scanned and uploaded a digital scrapbook of some of the historically important Star Wars ads from issues spanning the 1990s. When I first started collecting, I remember going through Chris's scrapbook, focusing on one or two pages a night and really studying the items in the advertisements. And even though I was doing this a decade ago, there was such a marked difference in the prices from the 1990s. With my limited knowledge of the Kenner line and of prototypes in general at the time, I didn't fully comprehend what I was seeing in the ads. But as I've learned more and more over the years, Chris's scrapbook has taken on an entirely new meaning for me as a collector. I'd like to play a game with you. I'm going to flip through the digital scrapbook and highlight a few interesting and notable collectibles, and I'd like you to try to guess what the prices were for them in the 1990s. So let's begin with June of 1990. A seller was offering four Revenge of the Jedi proof cards for sale. Although the Revenge cards are the most common ones today, the seller had spotlighted four of them in this ad. They were Han Solo, Boba Fett, Darth Vader, and Obi-Wan Kenobi, and each one was the same price. What do you think the seller's price was for each of the four Revenge proof cards? The price for each proof card was $35. Today, those same proof cards likely run between $2,000 and $10,000 each. Okay, next one. How much would you have paid for a carded Power of the Force Luke Stormtrooper, a loose blue Snaggletooth figure, or a loose vinyl cape Jawa if you had purchased them through Toy Shop Magazine in February of 1991? Think about prices for each of them for a moment. The carded Power of the Force Luke Stormtrooper, a loose blue Snaggletooth figure, and a loose vinyl cape Jawa. Do you have price estimates in your head? Of the three, which one would have been the cheapest? And which would have been the most expensive at the time? 
the carded Power of the Force Luke Stormtrooper, which sells today for more than $1,000 ungraded, had a price tag of $55. The loose blue Snaggletooth was a little more expensive at the time, at $65, and now sells for three dollars to $400 ungraded. And the vinyl cape Jawa was the most expensive, at $75. Today, a loose vinyl cape Jawa costs between $1,500 and $2,000. And to think, you could have owned all three for less than $200 in 1991. In that same year, three hand-painted hard copies were sold in a single listing. In the ad, the seller notes that these hard copies were used for catalog photography and in displays for Toy Fair. The characters were Wicket, W. Warwick, and Logray from the 1985 Ewoks line, and the villainous crime boss Size Fromm from the Droids line. All three hard copies were priced the same. So if you had wanted to purchase one of these hard copies in October of 1991, what was the magic number to add one to your collection? These hard copies are incredibly rare and are coveted by collectors today. If one were to hit the market, it would likely sell in the range of $8,000 to $20,000, if I were to guess. Maybe more. But back in 1991, each one was priced at $200. And around the same time, a seller had offered two unproduced Power of the Force carded figures. An FX-7 and a TIE Fighter Pilot. These were samples used at Toy Fair to promote the Power of the Force figures in the 1980s, but Kenner ended the line and never released them. Today, to the right collector, each would sell for tens of thousands of dollars. But in December of 1991, each could be yours for $250. In 1992, Steve Denny, one of the earliest and most notable collectors in our hobby, purchased an advertisement in Toy Shop Magazine to sell a hand-painted hard copy of the unproduced Governor Kung from the Droids line. In his ad, he said he would accept an offer over $1,200. Today, the asking price would be 10 to 20 times more. And in 1993, $1,200 was the asking price of a Return of the Jedi action figure display stand filled with 48 carded Jedi figures. One final question for you. In the same year, two carded vintage mock-ups were up for sale in a toy shop ad. They consisted of unpainted Return of the Jedi figure prototypes, or first shots, on Empire Strikes Back card backs. In this ad, the two that were offered were a Rebel Commando first shot on a Lando Calrissian card back and a Bib Fortuna first shot on an Empire card. The seller noted these were from a warehouse find in Hong Kong. Kenner produced examples like this to see what a new figure would look like sealed to a card, and they often used proof cards from the previous line before the new designs were created. So if you wanted to buy either mock-up, what would you have paid in 1993 through Toy Shop Magazine? Was the price higher or lower than $1,000? Was it higher or lower than $2,000? It hurts to even say this, but those nearly priceless pre-production pieces were selling for $300 each.
Those items are only a few of the hundreds Chris Dragulius cataloged during the time he composed his online scrapbook of the notable Toy Shop Magazine Star Wars ads. If you would like to explore Chris's work, you can find it at the website sandcrawler.com. I'll include a link in the show notes, but an easy way to find the scrapbook online is to search for Chris G's Toy Shop Scrapbook. In Chris's own words, his goal was to capture the listings of unique things that stood a good chance of rarely or never being seen again. About two years ago, I revisited Chris's Toy Shop Scrapbook. I went through it the same way I did when I first discovered it almost a decade ago. I focused on one page each night, right before I went to sleep. It was a great way to end the day, and it also helped me to realize how much I had learned over the years. I realized how far I had come in my understanding of the Kenner line and its history, as pieces that seemed mysterious and exciting back then were now ones I could properly define and better comprehended their significance to our hobby. Along the way, I have been fortunate to have seen some of these items in person, and a few of them are in the collections of people I now call friends. And I am so thankful to Chris and to those who recorded moments like these for future generations of collectors. After the success of Heir to the Empire in 1991, Bantam published the second and third books of the trilogy. Dark Force Rising premiered in 1992 and closed out the trilogy with The Last Command in April of 1993. The Heir to the Empire series kicked off what became a renaissance for Star Wars storytelling in the 1990s. The franchise George Lucas created found new life across all forms of media. Novels, comic books, and video games propelled the Star Wars story further than before, giving fans new ways to traverse the galaxy. And these stories became part of the Expanded Universe. The Expanded Universe, or EU, consisted of the stories outside the original trilogy, or one spearheaded by George Lucas. Working within the EU gave authors, artists, designers, and creators the opportunity to play in the sandbox Lucas established, and it gave them the freedom to explore different areas of the Star Wars universe in a cornucopia of styles and voices. The EU introduced new planets and species, new protagonists and the antagonists who would challenge them, and new approaches to how Star Wars could be defined. In a large way, the EU took the pressure off of George Lucas. He no longer had to conceive and oversee every story a publishing arm, a comic imprint, or video game house wanted to tell. Star Wars could continue to thrive and grow without his direct input, and there were others excited and willing to cultivate it now. And that gave Lucas the break he needed, away from the property that had consumed more than a decade of his life. It gave him the chance to breathe again, to experience life, and to approach new creative endeavors. And it gave him a chance to think about the next Star Wars story he wanted to personally tell. In the meantime, the decade of the 1990s rolled on. And for the Star Wars fan, the world of collecting was opening up like never before. 
the internet slowly made its way into homes across the world, creating centralized hubs of information about the hobby and sprouting online communities and conversations. A website devoted to collecting Star Wars memorabilia was getting ready to open its digital doors. The online marketplace was glowing with stores and a soon-to-be very famous electronic auction house. Kenner Toys, the company that introduced Star Wars action figures to fans more than a decade earlier, was preparing a new toy line for a new generation of children and collectors. The film that started it all was approaching its 20th anniversary, igniting the nostalgia of many who were there when it premiered in theaters. And before the decade's end, the first convention devoted solely to Star Wars and the fandom would take place during a rain-soaked weekend in Indiana. If the 1970s and 1980s created the Star Wars fan, the 1990s reignited that passion, and as Steve Sansweet noted, birthed the collecting hobby as we know it today. Join me for a future episode as we continue our look at how the 1990s played a major role in the development of the vintage collector and of the hobby itself. I hope you've enjoyed the episodes so far. They've been so much fun to produce, and the amount of topics to cover is virtually endless. And that is due to the passionate creatives who had a part in making Star Wars what it is, as well as to the fans who devote so much time and creativity of their own to keep Star Wars alive and exciting. My challenge to you for the week is to think about where you fit in our collecting community, regardless of how long you've been a part of it. What is your superpower? What talents do you possess? Are you currently using them in some way in our hobby? Is there a way you can contribute to our community? Is there something that you've always wanted to do as a Star Wars collector? Don't wait and let the opportunity slip by. There are so many wonderful ways you can contribute. And you never know where trying something today will take you tomorrow. Believe me, the fact that you're listening to this podcast is proof. If I can do something like this, you can certainly do what's creatively stirring in your heart. Figure out what it is and pursue it. I'll be rooting for you all the way. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Prototypes and Production. If I could, I'd humbly ask for your help with two things. The first is to please tell a friend about the podcast. The goal is to grow our community, and I truly believe a podcast like this can help others to not only learn about Star Wars, but to connect with others who share the same passions and interests. And the second is one that would really help me to get the word out. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. Reviews often help to persuade others to give a podcast like this a listen. And for algorithm-based platforms like Apple Podcasts, your review could help to spotlight this podcast for another listener. Thank you in advance. 
And if you're not already a subscriber to the podcast, please follow or subscribe. It's free to do so. So subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a quick review. It would really mean a lot to me. May your week be filled with wonderful Star Wars adventures. Until next time.